One of my earliest um, TV memories when I was a kid was back in 1994, the O.J. Simpson trial. Do you remember that? I know you want to see me over there, don't you, Daniel? I can still vividly remember like that shot from the chopper following that white Ford Bronco. Now, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You're too young, right? Like Daniel was not even a glimmer in his mother's eye in, 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 the, mid, in the mid, you know, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, just think Amber Heard and Johnny Depp times 10, okay? I remember that Ford Bronco, as, as O.J. Simpson's trying to make his escape, but he was arrested and he was put on this long trial which captured the attention of the world and People were glued to their televisions, and I, I very vividly remember the day when word got out that a verdict had been reached, right? And everybody turned on their TVs to see what was going to happen. Where, was the jury going to get up there and pronounce the words guilty or not guilty? And you could just kind of feel the tension in that room. And I'm sure you've seen this, you know, all sorts of like live trials on the news or maybe those, those courtroom dramas right, where there's that moment where they're sitting awaiting that verdict. That's going to be so incredibly consequential, right? Like either their life is going to be over, maybe they're going to die, maybe the death sentence, or they're going to walk free. You ever wondered, what does it feel like to be in that moment at that crossroads where you have these wildly different paths that are right in front of you? I wonder what that feels like to be sitting there awaiting the verdict. You've probably wondered that yourself. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he knew that feeling. You know, when he wrote this letter to the Philippian church, um, he himself was in prison. He was awaiting trial or awaiting verdict, uh, either the verdict of death or the verdict of life. And he writes them this letter as he's awaiting this verdict from prison. And, and you, it's interesting. He doesn't write to say, hey, guys, like, could you, could you, like, call everybody you know? Call the senators. Call, you know, the, the members of parliament. Try to advocate on my behalf. Like, I've been unjustly imprisoned here. He doesn't do that. Or you might expect him to say, hey, could you start a GoFundMe? We need to raise some, some money here to, um, you know, to fund my defense. He doesn't write with those sort of requests or with that purpose. He writes from prison awaiting this verdict to tell the Philippians and to tell us about his joy that he's experiencing. And not only his joy, but to tell them about the joy, too, that they can experience in the midst of any of their circumstances. Philippians is really all about finding joy wherever you find yourself. And so we're in week three going through this little book of the New Testament called Philippians. If you hadn't turned there yet, and you can turn there, keep it open on your lap because we're going to be in these verses together this morning. Um, Philippians talks more about joy than any other book. Sixteen times in these four short chapters, Paul references joy. Writing to us to help us know how we can live in joy no matter the circumstances that we're living 
in. And so last week, we looked at his second reference to joy in verse 18. He said, because of this, I rejoice. And if you remember the message there, the this that caused him to rejoice was the fact that everything that had come against him, all the opposition, all the adversity, all the hardship, the mockery, the threats, the trials, the imprisonment, the shipwreck, being bitten by a poisonous snake, all that stuff... God had actually used to advance God's work in the world. And because of that, he rejoiced. And so the big idea last week was that God, God's work is advanced not just in spite of adversity, but because of adversity. All those things that could come against us to oppose us or to destroy us, God can actually use and turn for our good and for the good of his work in the world. And for Paul, that was a cause of joy. Because of that reality, I rejoice. But now he's going to continue. He's going to talk about joy again. So if you look at verse 18, he continues and says, yes, and I'm going to continue to rejoice. And you hear you're going to see him kind of shift from the past to the future. He's talked about what's happened to him in the past and how that's been a cause of joy for him. And now he's going to look to the future and talk about um, something that is going to happen that for him will cause him to rejoice. He says in verse 18, Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I rejoice because I know that I'm going to be delivered. I just know it. So what does he mean? Is he, what deliverance is he talking about? You might think, well, I think what he's saying is he's rejoicing because he just knows he's going to be set free. He just knows that God's going to get him out of that predicament, out of that prison. And because he, because he has such trust in that, he's able to rejoice. I mean, look at verse 25. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, that is, I will live, and I will continue with all of you in your progress and, in, and joy in the faith. I, he said, I have strong confidence that I'm going to be set free so I can keep on going, doing my thing. Um, maybe that's what he's talking about. He's going to be set free, delivered. Is Paul here kind of promoting the power of positive, positive thinking? I just know it's going to work out. You know, there's two different types of people. Well, probably more than two, but at least two. There's worst-case scenario people. Do you know people like that? Maybe you are one of those people, right? Worst case scenario people, it's like, I, I know I'm going to fail that test. Well, how do you know that? You studied it. I just know I'm going to, I just have this feeling, I know I'm going to fail. I've had this headache for two days. I bet I have cancer. I've got a brain tumor, right? There's, there's people, they always just kind of go to the worst case scenario. But then there's people on the opposite side of that, right? They just always think everything's going to work out. Everything's just going to be okay. Don't worry about it. I, it's going to be fine. You'll get the job. I just know you'll get the job. Don't think you won't get the job. You're going to get the job. It's not cancer. Don't even think that way. No, it's not cancer. You don't have cancer. Right? People that just kind of have this positive thinking, right? It's, it's this kind of play this psychological game, have this mindset that everything is just going to work out the way I want it to. You just have to focus. You have to believe in the outcome you want. And if you can just believe in that, then you can live in joy. 
Is that what he's doing here? The power of positive thinking? I mean, the, the, the spiritual Christian version of that is to have enough faith. I just have enough faith. And I've prayed enough. And other people prayed so much. I just know God is going to do it. Because I've got enough faith and God can move mountains. And God answers prayer. I remember when I was this um, insecure well, pastor. I'm still an insecure pastor. But um, my first year of ministry, my, my mid-20s, uh, I was called upon to do a wedding, first time I've ever done a wedding. I was just really nervous, right? I mean, it was this couple, like kind of two high-profile families, just a gorgeous couple, gorgeous wedding party, gorgeous setting. It was on a beach in a bay of Lake Huron. And I mean, if you want to stress out a pastor, like hold an outdoor wedding, right? And for those of you who have done that to me, I forgive you. I forgive you. It's okay. But, you know, I was looking at the forecast leading up to this wedding, and it was calling for a 50% chance of rain on Saturday. And so I remember calling the mother of the bride saying, hey, listen, is there a backup plan here? Because, you know, there's a chance of rain. And she said, don't talk like that, Rusty. It won't rain. It won't rain. We've prayed about it. We have faith. We have so many people praying. God wouldn't do that. Okay. Woke up Saturday morning. There's clouds in the sky. This could go one way or the other. Everybody's assembled. Everyone's seated. It's just about that moment when the wedding party is going to walk down the aisle and all of a sudden, boom. Not like drizzle, like boom. Everybody scattered. Everyone ran to the street to sit in their car. Everyone is sitting in their cars along this long street. No one knows what to do next. There's no plan B. And I'm just freaking out. We figured it out. Like, it was this little country church that seated 75 max, and this was a 150-person you know, wedding party, so the church wasn't ready. We went back to the church, cleared the platform. People just squeezed in there. They got married. It wasn't pretty. But they got married. And I just remember, she was a little ticked off. Well, hold on here. Yeah, she was actually a little ticked off with me. Like, didn't you pray enough, pastor? It's like, and she was, she was kind of upset at God because, you know, she had faith. It prayed. So that's kind of that spiritual version of the power of positive thinking, right? Like if we just have enough faith and if we pray enough, we're going to get the good outcome. I'll be delivered. I just know because you're praying for me and I got faith. But what you need to see is Paul is not promoting or practicing the power of positive thinking here. That's not what he's doing. Because look at verse 20. He says, as he continues, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, I don't know which of these two is going to happen. I could live or I could die. I don't know. So when he says, I, I, I rejoice because I know I will be delivered, he's not saying, I rejoice because I know I'm going to be set free. I'm going to have the good outcome I want. That's not what he's saying. In fact, that word translated delivered is that word most often translated salvation. It's used in verse 28, a few verses later, when Paul says to them that you are being saved. And he's not talking about being delivered out of a, of a situation in life. He's talking about ultimate deliverance. Ultimate vindication. He knows that whatever happens, the day's coming, he's going to stand before God, the King of kings, and God is going to say, not guilty. Dwell with me in my presence. Enjoy life with me forever. He's talking about the ultimate rescue of God from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. 
that he will dwell with God forever. This is the deliverance he's talking about. What he's saying is there's two different paths, life and death, but they both lead to the same destination. And that's why I continue to rejoice. And Paul describes these two paths in verse 21. He says, for me, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Have you heard that verse before? Yeah, you have. You probably memorized it. And if you haven't, that'd be a great verse to memorize because it's easy, it's short, it's pithy, it's powerful. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But it's even more pithy. It's shorter. I like that word pithy. I don't think I've used that before. It's even shorter in the Greek. It's actually just four words. This is literally what he wrote in the Greek. You can throw that up there. Listen. Uh, it's four words. Living Christ, dying gain. Living Christ. These two things can happen. Living Christ, dying gain. Essentially what he's saying is the situation I'm facing is a win-win situation. Because it's either dying gain or it's living Christ. It's a win-win situation. I was with Eric at the keg because... Uh, last Sunday evening because you, very generously for Pastor Appreciation Month, the church gave us a keg gift card. They, they know my heart. Steak. You sit, I sit down in the keg, oh, I was happy looking at that menu. I'm like, there's no bad choice here. There's no bad choice. Just, just a lot of good choices. I mean, that, that one, if it was just me, I might pick that steak. I think that would be my favorite one. But my wife, she's gluten-free. And so sometimes it's nice to order something that's gluten-free, two dishes, so that we can share. It's nice to share, taste to do that together. So, you know, maybe I'll order that one over there because that one's good too and she can share that with me. And it's just a list of a bunch of good options. And what he's saying is he's, he's, looking, he's looking at the menu. It has two things on it. And he goes, this is a win-win. Dying gain, living Christ. What shall I choose? Now, He's not saying he can choose because he knows God's in control. It's not up to him to choose. What he's saying is, if I could choose, which one would I choose? Which one do I prefer? Boy, I'm feeling torn. Dying gain, living Christ. And this is what I want to tell you. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, that statement is true for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, then I don't know what situation you find yourself in, but you're in a win-win situation. When he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, you might say, well, that's great. You know, you're, you're Paul, you're an important guy, you're spiritual, you know, you're gifted. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that me is you, you can put your name in there. Put your name in there. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That statement is true for every Christian. So what does that mean? Just in the few minutes we have together, what does he mean when he says dying gain, living Christ, Dying gain, he goes on in verse 23, he says, I am torn between these two options. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. My desire is just to die so that I could go and be with Christ. That's the best option. Right? Jesus had said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Paul knows that through his faith in Christ, Jesus has made a way through death into this life, which is a greater life, which is a life for all of eternity, dwelling together with God in His kingdom. It's like that, nothing compares. Better by far. 
Let me just read a few passages that kind of talk about that. These are the words of Jesus. John 14, verses 1. Jesus says to His disciples, He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with Me so that you also may be where I am. Jesus has prepared a place for you in the presence of God. If you belong to Him. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter, actually 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5 verses 6, he reiterates this. He says, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. He's saying, it is better to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Did you know if you're a Christian that the, that the, the moment you die and you're going to die, I don't know when you're going to die, but you're going to die or Jesus will come before you die. One of the two. But if you die, that moment when you die, that next moment you will be at home in the presence of God, experiencing the fullness of joy, His presence in life. How does that sound to you? This is the inheritance of all who know Christ. This is what's coming. I know you may be in hard right now, but this is what's coming. And Paul, his mind, he lives with that in focus, with that reality. Because he'll say to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 1, he'll say, Since then you have been raised with Christ Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Your life is not here. Your life is there. It's ahead of you. It's hidden in Christ where He is. There is your life. There is your home. So for Paul, like, he thought dying for him is but gain, for Jesus has turned death from an enemy to a friend. Jesus has made of death a doorway to life, right? I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. He has turned death into a doorway. And I don't know if you've ever seen death. Death can be ugly. Death can be messy. I, I've seen people in the hospital bed. In those final moments, it's not always pretty. Maybe you have to. You know, delivering a baby is kind of messy too. I've been in the delivery room three times. I didn't like it. <laughs> like Erica insisted it was hard for her too, but I can't imagine having been... Well, honestly, I can't imagine it was harder for her than it was for me having to watch that. <laughs> it was messy. It was bloody. It was painful. When our three little beautiful girls came into the world, 
Uh, and as I was thinking about that, you know, I, I've come to think that what Jesus has done is Jesus has turned death into a birth canal. Whenever I think of death now for the Christian, what I think of is a birth canal that involves a little bit of pain, a little mess that, that brings one out into the open, into the life. You know, when my, when my babies were in Erica's tummy, they heard my voice. I was talking to them. I was praying over them. I was saying how much I loved them. You know, they were moving, and, and I was feeling them, and they kind of felt me, and I felt them. And for me, it's almost like a picture of now, like, we know God in part. We hear Him, and He hears us. We feel Him, and He feels us, right? But we're in this place. It's not the fullness of life, right? And, and what Paul is saying is what death has become because of Jesus it has become a birth canal from that place into the fullness of life where we see the Father face to face. We see it all. We experience the fullness of life. Death is but a doorway to life. And so Paul, his desire then is union with Christ. He says, better by far, death is gain. If you're a Christian, that's what lies ahead of you. Your life is not here, it's there. And then that should make a difference. That made a difference to Paul. He said, because of that, we live in the here and now to please God. You need to remember that when you wake up on Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning, whatever you face, it makes a difference that we have that sort of death worth dying in front of us. It makes a difference when you fix your eyes on the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. You have a death worth dying, Paul says. And here's, I think, his point here. If you have a death worth dying, then you have a life worth living. Remember Braveheart? That movie? Sorry, it just came to my mind. Not in the sermon notes. First service didn't get this. Just, that speech, that speech, Braveheart, rallying the troops, right? All men die, but not all men truly live. What Paul is saying is, forget I said that. I'm sorry, I was having a moment. Rabbit trail. He's saying, you got a death worth dying, and if you have a death worth dying, you have a life worth living. To live then is Christ. If dying is gain, living is Christ. What does it mean that to live is Christ? Well, he elaborates a little bit in the next verse. Right? Verse 22, he says, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Those two go together. Living in the body, staying here, remaining is fruitful labor for me. He'll continue in verse 25. I will continue with all of you. Or... I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and for your joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ may abound. So for him to live meant he could and would do fruitful labor. He could and he would serve those around him to help them progress in their faith, to help them progress in their joy in Christ, to help them boast more and more in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. That's what living meant for him then. 
If I live, it will allow me to exalt Christ by serving others, he says. And and that's true for us too. If we live, then it allows us to help those around us, to help our neighbors, to help our church family, to help those in our life, to help our world find their joy in Jesus, advance in their faith, help them, encourage them, pray for them that they might treasure Christ more. This is a picture of Christian service. To live is Christ. What he's saying, to live is to exalt Christ by serving you, by serving others that they might find their joy more and more in Jesus. If I remain, that will mean fruitful labor. He's not, like those two things are are synonymous in his mind. Remaining, fruitful labor. I think what Paul is saying is that to live in this world means that God has meaningful work for you to do. If you're a Christian here this morning and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and His Spirit lives in you, to live means that God has meaningful work for you to do. If He didn't have meaningful work for you to do, you wouldn't be here. Nobody outlives their usefulness. That's what he's saying. Nobody, because some people think they do outlive their usefulness. They got nothing to offer. They got no gifts. They're too old. They're in Rosewood. They're in a wheelchair. They can't get out. They can't even talk. They've outlived their usefulness. Paul says, no, no, no. Nobody outlives their usefulness. To live means fruitful labor. And that can take so many different forms, but it means serving others for the growth of their faith, for the growth of their joy. He's not just talking about Paul here. You can say, well, yeah, that's you, Paul. Yeah, God has fruitful things for you to do. Right? You're Paul. You're an apostle. You're gifted. You're a leader. But look what he says about what they, how they have served him in verse 19. When he begins, he says, yes, I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will be for my deliverance. He's saying, I'm going to be delivered because of how God is using you. Your prayers God is using to serve me. And if I remain, I'm going to live to serve you. I mean, this is a pretty powerful statement. What Paul is saying here is he believes that God uses the prayers of His people to provide strength for His servants. The prayers they prayed in Philippi, even though they were, maybe some of them were new Christians, but they were praying for Paul, and Paul says those prayers God has used to make a difference in His life, to strengthen Him. So they were serving one another for each other's mutual upbringing, upbuilding. And for him, this is life now. If we have a death worth dying, we have a life worth living. It changes the way we think. Life becomes about service. Joy becomes about serving others. I remember a question posted me once, and it was a bit of a scary question for a pastor, but the question was to me, if, Rusty, if your church disappeared, would anybody notice? If you just disappeared, would your community even know you were gone? Yeah, like I know you do all this activity, okay, but if you just disappeared, 
Would your community miss you? Hmm. Not a bad question. Maybe a good question to ask ourselves. You know, if I disappeared, would anybody be worse off? Would, any, would anybody miss anything that is helping them advance? Words of encouragement, prayer, ministry, support in whatever form. And that's not a question to cause you to think, oh man, I'm a nobody. It's there to say, you're a somebody. Paul is saying to live is Christ. Your life matters. If you remain, it's because God has fruitful labor. So he's saying, don't waste it. Your life matters. To live is Christ. Paul thought, you know, if, if there is no death worth dying, then he would actually live differently. It's not that he was just a good old moral boy. Well, you know, whatever, it's, it's just the right thing to do, even though we're all going to be worm food. It's the right thing to do. Now, this is what he said in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if the dead are not raised, which is to say, man, if there's no life after death, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's like, YOLO, check the bucket list, drink as much as you can, eat, eat as much as you can, just numb because your life has no ultimate meaning. Just live for the moment. But if the dead are raised, if our life is not here, but if our life is hidden with Christ, it totally changes the way we live, right? If, if there we will eat and drink and be merry forever and ever, it changes the way that we view our life. Life then becomes Christ. Not living for self, but living to serve. And for him, that was joy. That life could be one full of eternal meaning and eternal significance. Jesus gives your life eternal meaning and eternal significance. Because if you're here, God has work for you to do. That makes a difference. To live is Christ. To live is to serve. So Paul says here, man, I'm in a win-win situation. Kill me, and I'm going to be with Christ. Let me live, and I'll serve Christ. Either way, I win. He had this unstoppable mentality. Nothing could stop him from winning. Not life, not death. That's not the power of positive thinking. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the truth of the gospel. We have a death worth dying. So we have a life worth living. You know, just... Bringing this to a close, C.S. Lewis, you know, that great author, intellect, um, scholar of last century. He was an atheist in the middle of, um, he was, a, I think, a Cambridge professor who was an atheist who became a devoted Christian. And he famously said this, he says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Maybe you've heard that quote. Let me say it again. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown thrown in. Live for heaven, and it makes this life important, significant, and nothing you experience can stop it 
from being significant or meaningful. But aim at earth, and you'll get neither. So this is his word to us, and the word I, I'll leave you, this is true for us as Christians. Um, if you'll die a death worth dying, you can live a life worth living. So, how would you finish that statement? Life is what? What would it look like for you leaving here, going home, going to your family, going to your workplace, going to your neighborhood, going to your school? What would it look like for you to live a life that says, death is gain, so life is Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that a day is coming when we will see you face to face. We don't know when that day is, but we know we're a day closer today today than we were yesterday, Lord. And we long for that day. Lord, would you just wean our hearts off of this world and this life? Because meaning cannot be found here can't be found in our stuff. It can't be found in earthly relationships or earthly pleasures. It can't be found there. Lord, it can only be found in you. You are our life. Uh, And so, God, we just thank you that we have this great inheritance that awaits us, that when death comes to us, it will just be a birth canal to greater life. Thank you, God, that you give us a death worth dying. It just gives us boldness, gives us courage, Um, Lord, it just gives us motivation to live each day here to the fullest, which, which doesn't mean have as much fun as possible, live for self. It, it means live to serve. So Lord, would you just, um, would you just help us find our joy in that reality? Not joy in our circumstances, but joy in a life devoted to Christ, a life devoted to serve, a life that is meaningful and eternally significant. Lord, would you use us, um, the time that we have, to, to do what Paul said, would you use us to serve, to advance the faith of those around us, to share your love with those around us, Would you use us to increase the joy, those around us, the joy they find in you, that through us people may see that you're a treasure. Um, Use us to help people treasure you more. um, We just thank you, God, that we are yours. And we can't lose. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.